0: Log Talk Radio.
1: This is Abayomi Azikawe and welcome back to another edition of the Pan-African Journal. The Pan-African Journal is an audio news magazine It's brought to you here on a weekly basis. Uh, I am your host, uh, Abayomi Azikoway. Uh Today is Sunday, uh, August the 6th, uh, 2023. Uh, we're broadcasting live uh, from our studios in downtown Detroit. I'd like to thank all of our listeners for tuning in once again yet another edition of the pan-african journal later in our program we'll be bringing you our regular pan-african newswire report we will have dispatches on the threats to intervene in the west african state of niger where the economic community of west african states ecowas has drawn criticism over its unilateral threats backed up by the united states and france the nigerian senate has rejected the proposal by president bola Tinubu. To send troops into niger in order to reinstall a western backed head of state overthrown by the military late last month there's been a pushback on the on the ghana's founders day commemoration which is said to distort the actual history of the anti-colonial struggle led by dr kwame nkrumah and the democratic people's republic of korea has escalated its production of munitions in the second hour we look in detail at the burgeoning opposition to a proposed imperialist-backed ECOWAS military intervention in Niger to reimpose an operative of France and the U.S. Finally, we continue our Black August programming, where we look further into the Haitian Revolution and the New Orleans Rebellion of 1811. These and other features uh, will be brought to you uh, during the course of our program. Stay tuned, and we'll take our musical interlude uh, in the West African state of Mali uh, with Mamadou Giabati from the album entitled Tonga. That uh, was a selection of tracks uh, from uh, the Tonga album by Mamadou Giobati. And you're listening to the Pan-African Journal, a worldwide radio broadcast, a special edition of our program uh, that, of course, is broadcast uh, here on the Pan-African Radio Network uh, on a weekly basis. And uh, right now we want to move into our Pan-African Newswire segment. Of our program, a lead story, of course, deals uh, with the situation in the West African state of Nigeria, and uh, within the wider uh, West Africa subregion of the continent. Now, the ECOWAS chair of uh, the organization, who is the president of Nigeria, uh, did set a deadline for Sunday today for Nigeria's coup leaders to cede power or face military intervention. But the Senate leader urged President tenubu to continue diplomatic efforts as the ultimatum neared. Nigeria's Senate advised President Bola Tanubu on Saturday uh, to first look into other options than the use of force in Niger as a deadline by West African bloc under Abuja's leadership uh, for the coup leaders to reverse their actions was set to expire earlier today. The economic community of West African states gave Niger's coup leaders until Sunday to reinstate ousted President Mohammed Bazun. Uh, Late on Friday, the bloc's defense minister said that they had reached a plan for military action against Niger's junta. Yet the group has been more quiet since Friday, and some have questioned whether military intervention is indeed likely should the nominal deadline expire. In Abuja, meanwhile, Kanubu faced a call for restraint from his own lawmakers. Now, Senate President uh, Gatswill Akpabio told journalists uh, yesterday the House urged recently elected President Tinubu, who is was also the chairman of ECOWAS, to encourage the bloc to strengthen the political and diplomatic options. As per Nigeria's constitution, the deployment of armed forces for combat duty outside the borders must be approved by the Senate, unless the president deems national security under, quote, imminent threat or danger, unquote. Advice from senators in northern Nigerian states particularly encouraged exhausting all other options before seeking intervention. And uh, there's more information uh, on uh, the situation uh, in Niger. Uh, We've been covering it on a daily basis uh, at uh, the Pan-African Newswire. Thousands of supporters of a military seizure of power in Niger have gathered at a stadium as a deadline set by the economic community of West African states to return deposed President Mohamed Bazoum to power is set to expire. A delegation of members of the now ruling National Council for the Safeguard of the Homeland, the CNSP, arrived at the 30,000 seat stadium in the capital, Niamey on Sunday to cheer from supporters, but many of whom carried Russian flags and portraits of the military leaders. The stadium, named after Sini Conche, who led Niger's first coup d'etat in 1974, was almost full, and the atmosphere was festive. You know, Mohamed Tumba, one of the CNSP leaders, denounced in a speech those lurking in the shadows who were plotting subversion against the forward march of Niger. We are aware of their Machiavellian plan, said Tumba. The demonstration coincides with the ultimatum set by ECOWAS on July 30th for the coup leaders to reinstate Bazoom. But so far, the generals who seized power in Niamey on July 26th have shown no sign of a willingness to give away. ECOWAS uh, military chiefs agreed to a plan Friday for a possible military intervention to respond to the crisis, with the armies of countries including Senegal and Ivory Coast saying they were ready to participate Neighboring Nigeria's Senate pushed back against the plan and urged the country's president, the ECOWAS bloc current chair, to explore options other than the use of force. Algerians Chad, non-ECOWAS neighbors with strong militaries in the region have said they oppose military action and will not intervene. Meanwhile, neighboring Mali and Burkina Faso, both run by the military, say an invasion of Nigeria by ECOWAS troops would be a declaration of war against them too. And uh, it is quite a tense situation uh, right now uh, in uh, Niger. Niger's military government has just uh, had just hours to restore ousted President Mohamed Bazoum to power or face the possibility of military action from the regional bloc ECOWATS. Now, a week ago, the West African leaders gave the crew leaders a week to comply with his demands, or it will quite take all measures which may the use of force, unquote. But in Niger's neighbor, Nigeria, where the bulk of the troops are likely to come from, voices against the involvement of the military are growing louder. The two countries also have close ethnic and historical connections. Yesterday, Nigeria's Senate urged the government to look at, quote, political and diplomatic options, unquote. And in the northern uh, Nigerian city of Sokoto, bordering Niger, uh, which is home to the Army's 8th Division the anxiety is increasing. Uh, it sits on a major junction on the road leading to Niger and is likely to be a mustering point for troops before any military action. The serenity of Sokoto's residential neighborhoods belies the heightening tension in the city and the wider northwestern state. One aspect feeding this is that, according to locals, one in every five residents in Sokoto is from Niger or has connections with the country. And um, you're listening to uh, the Pan-African Newswire segment uh, of uh, the Pan-African Journal. I'm your host, uh, Abayomi Azikawe. In other news, uh, in the Democratic Republic, People's Republic of Korea, Kim Jong-un, the Secretary General of the Workers' Party of Korea and President of the State Affairs of the Democratic People's Republic of Korea, gave field guidance at major munition factories, including the factory producing the shells of large-caliber multiple-launch rocket systems from August 3rd to the 5th to learn about the implementation of the core goal of the party's policy on munitions industry. He was accompanied uh, by Jo Yong-won, Kim Jae-ryong, Jo Chung-ryong, Kim Yo Jong, and Park jong Chon. The respected comrade Kim Jong-un was greeted by Kim Jong-sik, Hong yong Shil, and Kim Yong hak deputy directors of the Department of the Munitions Industry of the Party Central Committee at the relevant factories together with senior officials of the factories. Inspecting the factory producing the shells of super large multiple launch rocket systems, Kim Jong-un learned in detail about the recent modernization of technology and production lines achieved by the factory and its current production. He highly praised the factory for having made great successes in the work to achieve the long-term goal of updating production lines assigned at the fifth plenary meeting of the Eighth Party Central Committee and to build the capacity for producing a series of the shells of large-caliber multiple launch rocket systems. He advanced during his field guidance at the factory uh, on November 9th last year. And uh, finally, uh, in the West African state of Ghana, uh, there has been a piece written uh, in uh, one of the major news agencies, which says the decision of President Akufu Aju Bukwemir uh, led government uh, to introduce Founders Day is yet an attempt by the leaders of those who belong to the Dankwa Busia tradition to distort Ghana's history and promote hegemony in our body politic. That was written uh, by Elhaji Haji el Hassan Mbalba, who is the chairman of the national democratic congress uk ireland chapter he goes on to say that the united states has founding fathers because the founding fathers lives lives and actions laid the framework or foundation on which america was built the founding fathers were men who signed the declaration of independence helped draft the constitution which brought 13 colonies together to form the federation of the united states in the case of ghana dr jb danqua edward akufu adu and others opposed Dr. Kwame Nkrumah's strategies for Ghana independence Independence now, and they even opposed Dr. Nkrumah's request to the British government to grant independence to Ghana with a unitary system of government. The Gankwa-Busia tradition also rejected the report of Sir Frederick Bourne Commission, which, among other things, recommended a unitary system of government for independent Gold Coast. The question one would like to ask is, what role did President do Selfishly and unfairly selected founders' play in the creation of the Ghana, which was birthed on the 6th of March, 1957. Had it not been Dr. Nkrumah's resilience and perseverance, Ghana would not have gained independence on the 6th of March of 1957. Besides, the Northern Territories, which were classed as protectorates, only became part of the Gold Coast after the promulgation of Sir Alan Byrne's constitution, of 1946. Therefore, to go by the principle underpinning the U.S. Founding Fathers' idea, then the nationalists from the Northern Territories, Chief S. Dumbo Chief Yakubu Tali, and uh, Dr. Mumi uh, Bahumia, and others, should have been recognized and awarded with Founders' Awards by President Akufu Aju. I am not insinuating uh, Dr. J.B. Danqua and others did not contribute in our struggle to free the then Gold Coast. They did. But Dr. Kwame Nkrumah is the primus pares first among the equals, and deserves to be treated as such. He is Ghana's founder. In light of above, Founders Day idea is an attempt to distort Ghana's history with the sole aim of promoting hegemony and, at best, discrimination. And that was an um, editorial written by el Haji El-Hasan M. Balva, uh, chairman of the NDC UK Ireland chapter. With that, uh, we're going to conclude uh, the Pan-African Newswire segment of uh, the Pan-African Journal. And in concluding this segment of our program, we want to remind our listeners that the Pan-African Newswire is an international electronic press service. It is designed to foster intelligent discussions on the affairs of African people throughout the continent and the world. The press agency was founded in January of 1998. Since then, it has published tens of thousands of articles and dispatches in hundreds of newspapers, uh, magazines, journals, research reports, and on blogs and websites throughout the world, the Pan-African Newswire represents the only daily international news source on Pan-African and global affairs. If you'd like to log on to uh, the Pan-African Newswire so you can stay abreast of some of the most pressing and burning issues of the day, all you need to do is go to our website, and that's at panafricannews.blogspot.com. And that's Pan Pan-African News. That blogspot.com. And uh, if you'd like to uh, have access to today's uh, Pan-African Journal, uh, this special uh, worldwide uh, radio broadcast, all you need to do is go uh, to the Pan-African Radio Network, and that's at blogtalkradio.com forward slash pan Journal. That's blogtalkradio.com forward slash pan Journal. And uh, you're listening to uh, the special edition of uh, the Pan-African Journal for uh, Sunday, August the 6th, 2023. We'll be back. Welcome back. Uh, The music of the Temptations uh, from the track entitled Message to the Black Man. And uh, you're listening to the Pan-African Journal, special uh, worldwide radio broadcast uh, for Sunday, August the 6th, uh, 2023. And uh, we are broadcasting from our studios in downtown Detroit. And, of course, Niger uh, has become a focus of the international community the uh overthrowing of the government uh, approximately 10 or 11 days ago uh, by a military junta uh, that has called itself the council uh, for uh, the defense of the homeland the cnsp and they have uh threatened to embark upon another course in terms of national development as well as international relations and uh, we're going uh, to listen uh, to some of the voices uh, that are opposing uh, ECOWAS, uh, which is being egged on uh, by the United States and France and NATO uh, to intervene militarily in Nigeria to protect uh, the uranium uh, deposits, the gold, and also the military installations that have been uh, constructed there uh, by the United States, France, as well as other NATO countries. Let's listen in.) President Bola
2: Tinubu's letter to the Senate on Friday asking for legislative approval to initiate military action against the Nigerian Republic over the coup d'etat in that particular country threatened to raise the stakes in an already dangerous game. But the apparent de-escalation of the situation following that statement by ECOWAS Chiefs of Staff and the move to embrace dialogue, may have provided a wider avenue for reconciliation. We have in the studio Archie K an African Affairs Analyst, and he joins us here in the studio. I want to say thank you very much for joining us.
3: Thank you for having me.
2: And the clock is ticking. The deadline is almost over. We, it seems like the game of chess. Who will blink first. Talk to us at this moment in time. What is the best route out of this sticky situation that is like sitting on a keg of gunpowder?
1: Yeah. um.
3: Obviously, we we can breathe a little bit uh, easier uh, following the statement from the ECOWAS uh, Chiefs of Staff. Uh, Obviously, it wasn't a decision by them, but um, a decision by the political heads of uh, ECOWAS. Uh, Perhaps they might have been precipitated uh, in the initial uh, reaction uh, to the coup, Um, a reaction of anger in a frustration that, uh, you know, um, after about uh, four or five years of uh, consistent military coups across the this, this subcontinent that uh, it seemed as if there was no stop. And so perhaps uh, there was a thinking that something drastic needed to be done. And so instead of uh, the carrot, the stick was used uh, in terms of uh, the threat that was issued uh, to the military hunter. And um, so it is refreshing to hear that um, uh, even though the president had also uh, transmitted or sent a letter to the Senate for approval to use military action. Uh, but, um, you know, uh, obviously a lot of people feel that that is not the way to go. If you look at the history of Nigeria in the continent, Nigeria has always been the benevolent uh, 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 partner in the continent. We have used our size wisely and we have always used it well. Uh, for the liberation of Africa and you know uh, history is replete with uh, what we have done in the African continent our foreign the trust of our foreign uh, relations I mean uh, you know has always been uh, Africa first you know it has always been Afrocentric how do we protect the African uh, continent and, and so and we did that bounteously in places like uh, South Africa Zimbabwe Mozambique and so where we, we had always been there for the rest of Africa, even though there is the argument that we didn't really derive much in terms of what we get back from all of this, because it's all about national interest. So even when you inter- intervene in other states, even within the African uh, continent, there must be some benefits that should accrue to you for the sacrifices you're making. We have not gotten much, but beyond that is the fact that uh, it's, it's unheard of, really. It's not in our nature and character to launch wars you know, against the other countries. Yes, we would understand the background to this, the military coup, and the fear that if care is not taken, it could spread even to a country like Nigeria and other countries that have not experienced it. We have had, we had the, how many years of, um, you know, a military interruption in our democratization process. And so we know it's not the best option. But when you get to that level of you want to move towards a war, it causes a lot of panic. The consequences are grave and they are severe. You know, and then we don't want to have another Ukraine in our doorstep, just beside. We don't want to have another uh, Zelensky uh, who, it would appear, uh, has little say over the engagement of his country, uh, even with Russia. Uh, I mean, the strings from what we we, we have seen seem to be pulled from other sources. And so, you now have a situation where about a quarter of the population of Ukraine has left that country and have vowed never to come down, to come back. You have 6 million refugees displaced. You have 8 million that's outside of Ukraine, 8 million internally displaced. So all of these things are grave consequences. And you know, when you get into even the nitty-gritty of this discussion, you realize that uh, no country will come out unscathed. Nigeria will be bruised badly. Uh, Niger will be bruised badly. And other forces that might go into Niger, either to protect or to remove the, the regime in Niger, will be badly bruised. You know, and so it's something that uh, I think diplomacy, uh, more diplomacy, ought to 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 you know uh, to be used right now. For now, I, the military option is actually, and of course, you also need to have this broad-based support from your citizens for war, because if you look at you know what happened the the Korean War, for instance, and all the other wars America fought, eventually uh, America. Uh, was essentially defeated, for instance, in the Korean War, because the tide of public opinion had turned, straight, you know, uh, massively against the American, you know, military establishment, against the American government. And so, even the military themselves, seeing the criticisms of their actions or heroic actions in Korea, became despondent that even their own people are not supporting them. So you need that kind of support, and I am very sure at this particular point in time that the Nigeria, I'm talking about my country right now, that the president and the government do not have that kind of support that
4: is needed to take a country to war. Alright, Ajike. Now, yeah. if ECOWAS fails to act like it is doing now, so what's the implication, the wide implication for the bloc uh, on military coups occasioned by Russian influence and the continent as a whole? We are seeing a denunciation of the uh, earlier ties of, uh, to France, uh, yeah. of home, uh, yeah. you know, to, to, to that extent, and of course an embrace of uh, Russian uh, influence, as it were, the Wagner Group and all that. Uh, Of course, uh, we know the um, manipulative tendencies of uh, that uh, action, as it were, uh, taking into consideration the uh, milking of the natural resources of that uh, to fund the mercenary activities, as it were. So, on a wider context, you know, if Air didn't do what it was supposed to do, of course, the charter of which all of them were signatories to, when it comes to military coups, know, uh, you know, for forbids all of this uh, happening and then we're tilting towards that as it were.
3: Yeah, but again, um, this is a long story. Mm-hmm. I mean, um, uh, yeah, you're talking about the Russians, now the Wagner groups, mm-hmm. group, you're talking about Chinese growing influence in, uh, in, in Africa. You're also talking about uh, the age old influence, new colonial influence mm-hmm. and imperialist influence of the capitalist West in Africa and the continent. And then you look at the continent as the continent is today. What the richest continent in the world, without any doubt, but the poorest, you know. Uh, And then why is that so? So it would mean that our interactions in the past, all of these years, with the West has not really availed availed the continent of much needed succor that comes from the strength you have from your resources, both human and natural, you know, resources. So the implication is that that experiment has not worked in so many ways. You know, the continent is heavily indebted, uh, in most cases to the West. Now we're going East, we are borrowing, and we're also indebted. Of course, that does not exonerate African political leadership from its governance of the rich resources of uh, the continent. So there's much as to blame for what, I mean, as others, for what more than others, for what is happening. Because there is this generally accepted uh, uh, position that Africa can never be saved unless Africa saves itself. So we find ourselves in that dilemma. Yes, if you remove uh, the French forces, because they have not thrived under French, you know, uh, uh, new colonial structures. If we've had relationship with other, uh, you know, uh, uh, countries, foreign countries, Portugal, parts of, uh, mm-hmm. you know, Africa, and of course, um, the British, uh, Nigeria, and Ghana, and some other countries, you know, and then you now have the French. I think the relationship with the France has been the most toxic mm-hmm. because of the new colonial structures that they have put in place that have... You know, you know, torn at the fabric of some of these countries, you know, and, and obviously it has become unsupportable. And so that sentiment against, you know, the French uh, has grown over the years and this is, has also led to this. That is not in any way to say that the military, these military people that are in charge are not military adventurers, that they are not there to benefit also from the resources of the state because we have not until, you know, we see what happens going forward, you know. But the reality, you know, is that uh, we need to be careful. We, that's why I was talking about in Ukraine, Mm. we do not want to fight a proxy war, Mm. you know, on behalf of the great powers. The consequences will be devastating and because what you're going to do is that, what they're going to do is that they're going to keep on pumping weapons, all Mm. manners of weapons, and already you have borders that are porous, that are being exploited by all kinds of criminal elements, deviants, social deviants, bandits, and all that. So they're going to pour into Nigeria's border. You have an army that is stretched tight in this country because they are operational in different areas of conflict in Nigeria, across the country. You want to burden this army again with this kind of situation. And don't forget that about 75% or 80% of our troops and our resources will be used. Forget the fact that, um, yes, there are other countries within the COAS. The expectation is that Nigeria is going to lead, that Nigeria will do you know, virtually everything. When it comes to dislodging this, and we do not have the resources, neither do we, you know, either in terms of men, in terms of material. So we need to do whatever. So as for the Wagner Group, there's always that possibility, Mm. you know, that you are going to you are replacing, you know, one devil with another devil. Mm. So we need to be very very careful about all of this.
2: Mm. Just quickly, let me just throw this on in. First of all, people seem to say that this is almost a pseudo conflict playing out between. America here in Nigeria, yeah. so to speak, and Russia yeah. in EJ. Yeah. Talk to me about this and how can ECOWAS use this opportunity to capture its old glory and its influence on the continent of Africa?
1: Yeah, I, I, think,
3: I think the blight of Africa has always been the disposition of African political leaders. Um, it is not as if we have not had bright force. you're talking about the history of Africa. We had a Kwame Nkrumah at the time. We had a Thomas Sankara at the time and all that. But these are people that were active during the Cold War when the, the battle between the, 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 uh, the NATO allied countries and the USSR allied countries was intense. And, and so whenever you tilted, you wanted to move to one direction, you became the enemy of the others. And so foreign intelligence agencies have been involved in the assassination of African political leaders. Whose ideological fixation and commitment to the African continent was, 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 you know, uh, in contradiction to their strategic national security interest. So it's all about, you know, of course, geopolitics. Once they have defined what constitutes their national security interest, every other thing that stands in the way, they get it out, including the assassination of foreign, you know, political leaders. Mm -hmm. And that has been there. And, and that was why, you know, um, uh, Gerald Ford, um, Ronald Reagan, Mm -hmm. And um, I think um, Jimmy Carter, you you know, at a time had to issue executive orders to stop American foreign, you know, agents like the CIA from assassinating foreign, uh, you know, political leaders. That has that has always been how important this has been. So the issue, and there is this saying, and that obviously it is true, that once Africa is allowed to develop, then some of the economic advantages that the rest of the world has will cease. So the issue, you know, and the typical example is Congo Democratic Republic. For the past, from the moment of independence, you know, when they realized the direction that uh, uh, Patrice Lumumba was going, Mobulu uh, Seseko was used as a prop, you know, to get him out of the way. And then we have seen what has happened in the Democratic Republic of Congo. The richest country, one of the richest countries in the world, has never known peace for one day. You go into you know, uh, the DRC, for instance, in the forest of the DRC, there are airstrips where foreign planes just come in, take mm-hmm. away after creating crisis in that region mm-hmm. with the various militias. So these are some of the... And, and, and so what do we do, I mean, in Africa? I think we need to take an adv- the advantage of the fact that everybody wants to have a piece of pie in Africa. And so you have to look for a way to be able to play one against the other. Africa, obviously, is the beautiful bride. You know, uh, um, uh, about 55% of arable land in the world is Africa. Yeah. Then, you know, uh, Cobalt, Coltan, and all the other major mineral resources in the world are from Africa. You know, so they have African leadership, and I think it has to do a lot with the leadership the uh, you know, uh, ability of uh, the African leadership leaders to understand the dynamics that are playing out in the continent mm. and what they need to do you know, to be able to confront this. It will take a lot of bravery and courage, you know, but it is something that can be done if Africa can get together. So we don't need and Perhaps we need to use this issue of uh, the coup uh, in Niger to look for a way for, African con- for West African countries, maybe using the diplomatic you know, angle to look for a way of um, not just resolving it, but asking themselves, how do we move forward? We need the only antidote to coup, you know, is not invasion of another country, it is good governance. It's as simple as that. Take away the basis of, of, of the reasons that the military coupists, these military adventurers are using, you know, as a basis to stage a coup, and then it becomes practically impossible for them to be able to do this. You know, so when you talk about ECOWAS and the rest, there's an African, you know, a president within ECOWAS that has been in power for 18 years. The father was in power in his country for about 36 years. Today, he's one of those promoting democracy. So it is the hypocrisy that people are talking about, but that is not to say that we have to allow, you know, uh, this
4: coup. Oh, all right, uh, Achike. Now, do you think North African countries, especially Libya and uh, Algeria, will be sympathetic to Nigeria's military takeover? And, of course, uh they have their own internal strife, as it were. Libya has uh, Khalifa Haftar and his uh, cohorts uh, doing their, their thing, and warlords, and of course uh, Algeria too has uh, its own internal uh, issues, as it were. So, being you know, military, yeah. and, uh, you
3: know. No, no. It's, it's good you're asking this question because yeah. that would naturally bring you to Sudan mm-hmm. that's having all manners of crisis. Indeed, You have countries from the, in the Middle East that have taken sides. You have United States also that has sides. You have Turkey that has taken sides. You know, and and all that all over the place. Uh, so depending again on what they what they have defined as their interests, you know. And so we need to have a way to be able to combat you know some of these issues, obviously. And I think Nigeria we are told that uh, ECOWAS has also sent delegations to mm-hmm. to Libya, just like you talked mm-hmm. about, then Algeria, because obviously Algeria has made statements in support of a, of a Niger that they might get involved. If you look at the history of Algeria, you would also understand. These are anti-imperialist, and you will understand where they are coming from, why they made that statement. So we need to be able to nip all of these things in the bud. Right. Yeah. Okay. We
2: just want to say thank you very much. It's unfortunate we're out of time, although okay. you didn't answer my okay. question. Okay. <laughs> but we'll leave okay. that for another time. All right. Thank
1: you. Welcome back. And that was a discussion uh, uh, taking place uh, over Nigerian television in regard uh, to uh, the dangers associated uh, with an ECOWAS, Uh, intervention that was backed uh, by the Pentagon, the French Armed Forces, and the North Atlantic Treaty Organization into uh, the neighboring country of Niger. Let's listen to another dialogue. The last one week was
4: all about an attempt rather by ECOWAS to lay down the law for coup leaders in Niger's Republic. Tensions ratcheted up when the coupists called the bluff of the sub-regional body under the chairmanship of Nigeria's President Bola Tinubu, thereby setting the stage for all manners of permutations, including how a possible conflagration could impact the relative peace and tranquility over the west coast of Africa. The Nigerian Senate's uh, rejection of President Tinubu's request for military intervention. However, a window for de-escalation may have opened the door to finding a solution to the impasse. Uh, joining us now to talk about how this window of peace can be optimally utilized by Nigeria is Shitu Mohamed, a good uh, governor's advocate. Good to have you on Newsday.
5: Thank you. Good morning. Uh, thank you for being there. All right. Uh, since we have uh,
4: this window of opportunity uh, you know, to de-escalate, as it were, um, uh, through negotiations, and of course dialogue is still on the table, but when you take a look in practical sense, do you think the Nigerian economy can sustain a prolonged uh, military conflict with Niger? Uh, you know, regarding uh, the Junta's the incursion into politics there?
5: Uh, for us, uh, we believe that, first of all, we condemn the coup. We, we condemn undemocratic taking over government in any ramification. But we can also now look at the circumstances, because the Nigerians are saying We want to liberate ourselves. We want to take ourselves from the shackle with which the French uh, have put in us. Then we look at it. Uh, uh, Nigeria has a lot uh, of historical and cultural affiliation with uh, Niger. And then uh, in every uh, three Nigerian is Nigeria. Then we look at, yes, we've been able to Help to put Liberia into democratic uh, footing, we've helped to put Sierra Leone in democratic footing, uh, and we also helped Angola to, uh, re- road to, to to democratic process before it uh, goes back again. So we have helped a lot of country uh, where Af- Nigerian foreign policy is Afrocentric, that we know, and. Uh, we have to now sit down because every circumstances has its peculiarity. This peculiarity, what today is that as a country, Nigeria, uh, we can't go to war with our brother because instead of war, war, we must now look at dialogue. If you take war to, the, to your brothers, after the war you still come back to the dialogue and table. Therefore, uh, our advice is to say instead of us going to war, we should now find means with which ECOWAS will railroad Nigerians into democratic footing that is in conformity with their culture and belief, not in the western or in our own way. And it is time that Nigerians become that father of Africa roles, and if you look at Nigerians, they are there for us day, night, during our need, during the Civil War, and out of our own neighbors, they are one of the most friendly neighbor Nigerians ever have. All Most of them are hostile to this country, and for us to now take war to the people that believe in us, I think uh, uh, it's time for us to say no. And then it's time for us to now deliberate their they've turned coup plotting, instead of calling it a coup, they've now turned it to say they are libera- it's a liberation movement. And you can see the people that shrunk out to say it's liberation. Therefore, as father of democratic uh, process in, in, in Africa, in West Africa, 22 down ladder of our democratic parties, It is time now we look at putting them on the uh, democratic footing, giving them the type of democracy they need, re-roll them, and then bring, use our big uh, brother's uh, heart to now bring them to table, discuss with them in three, four, five, six months. We should be able to re-roll them back to democratic setting. I think that will help us. And uh, I want to say... We are not condemning what ECOWAS, the uh, the step they took. Yes, they have to react that way, but when you react, you come back to look at, okay, why do I react this way? What are the consequences of going into war? This fund, if we go into this war, the fund we are going to spend, we have our own internal uh, problem. What is our problem? Why Nigerians 60% are impoverished? In Nigeria, we have the same uh, history. And what we should do with that money that we take to war is to now bring it back to this country, develop our agricultural sector, put processing, because when you go to this war, you are going to kill and then uh, destroy a lot of things that we have in common with Nigerians. And then we've closed border now. Look at number of trailers that are waiting at the border of uh, Niger that cannot go in. Those with tomato, those with uh, food, uh, perishable food attempt have lost money. Who is losing that money? It's we, Nigerians. So I, therefore, want to order we should go for dialogue, diplomacy, and political solution to Nigerians' uh, problem. Uh, although it's condemnable, that this is the way we should go. And I've I looked at as Nigerians should start uh, 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 putting our money into agriculture so that we can even feed Nigerians. That is their problem. Nigerians should be able, instead of taking war to their door, we should feed them. And then All right, to, uh, Mr. Uh, Mohamed and be able to draw them into democratic processes.
2: Yeah, permit me to in at this point, uh, because you've emphasized quite a number of things, and let's try to dimension it a little bit. Yeah, you said something about our foreign policy strategy has to do with um, being Afrocentric. But a lot of people would firstly ask, what do we always get for several of this, put it uh, for lack of a better word, humanitarian gestures, we actually um, give out. You have mentioned Liberia, of course South Africa, you mentioned Angola, and quite a lot of them. Because most of the time we're always um, left empty because gestures are not always reciprocated. And this particular move by ECOWAS, is that not the reason why we are where we are in the first place, in terms of the cost of living crisis we're actually facing in Nigeria? Because a lot of people questioned that the hasty decision in which ECHO was decided to actually use the option of war, which which should be an option of last resort, just shows that when it comes to Africa, leadership still is a big problem. Because you mentioned these coup plotters are always emphasizing. If you even go back to the 60s, when the first coup took place in Nigeria, the same reasons um, the majors in the 1960s gave are still the same reasons they are given in 2023. And that is the fact that leadership or leader, our leaders have failed us. How can ECOWAS begin to address the German problem? That leadership is at the lowest ebb in Africa and people are suffering and people are crying for direction. But we do not have people that can take us from point A to point B. Rather than doing that, we always probably acting with rush of blood to the head most of the
5: time. Yes, uh, that is why uh, when I was the chairman of Interparty Advisory Council, uh, we, talk, uh, we brought to table with uh, uh, basket uh, donors, that is the IRI, International Republican uh, Institute and Democratic uh, Institute to say there should be proportional representation. What is killing African democratic process is winners take all. And then when, because you can have the best bread in other political parties, but you won't take them because they are not part of your, they are not in your party. That is why we brought that proportional representation. And that is the problem African is having. And we say we should design our political system according to our own culture and belief. It's not necessarily. And I want to cite an example of China for you. China today is a democratic nation, but they fashion their democratic process within their, with, uh, with their own belief, culture and belief. And why they do that is that you have Today you can only uh, be hearing of uh, a China, part, uh, one political party, but you have other political parties that represent other uh, interests. In, uh, and they now say, okay, let's put a political bureau that take ne- uh, 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 decisions for whatever we are going to do in the country, and they meet once in a year and take uh, de- the uh, uh, decision for the country. In that decision body, you have other political parties that also have voice, but the only thing you hear is that China is one-party state because they all come together and then that is how we in Africa. Today, Nigeria has liberated various countries, the apartheid, the war, the coup and everything. And why we are not gaining is because we've not institutionalized it. After we fight the war, we leave it like that, then we become enemy. Today, uh, a South African does not respect us. Uh, the Liberian you are talking, the Leoneans are looking at us as hogs Because we have not institutionalized our, those uh, gestures that we have given to other countries. And that is why we said, let Nigel be a case study. We have seen what we've done before and failed. And then bring them to democratic setting. And today they are democratical government. Now, Nigel are saying we don't want to build with our colonialism. It is liberation and oddity. We sit down as people. And luckily for us, Nigeria is the chairman of ECOWAS, uh, uh, head of uh, government. Therefore, we have the opportunity now to look at how do we now fashion our democratic setting to be able to impact on Nigerian political system and bring them to table and then fashion a political system that will help them. Not to just bring them to table, agree for them to go and uh, have an election, no. It's for us to now sit down, take our best brains from the foreign affairs, from the old, uh, political barriers, from universities, sit down, and give them a political system that will suit them and then re-roll them back to that democratic uh, setting and and footing. That way we've helped them to achieve peace and we have helped ourselves as a country to also achieve peace and then it is where you have peace that you... As I'm telling you, many Nigerians are losing money every day. Not even Nigerians, Nigerians. Those that supply food, those that supply items, those that provide services from Nigeria to Niger, today they are losers and that is Nigerians losing those money. So we must, as matter of urgency, leave issue of war, then lure them back to table, put them on the table, discuss with them, bring political system. We've been able to manage ourselves as a country for the past 22 years. So we can go back again. Democratic setting has been footed. In Nigeria, either in a long way or in a good way, as we go on, the democratic space will start uh, giving uh, way to a better democratic movement. And as soon as we are able to put democratic uh, the setting that is to our own uh, belief and culture, then we we'll look, we will see that other Africans will follow. We are giant. That is not doubt we should not be a, a, a giant, an elephant that is sleeping. Is is that's why I commend Chief Commander and Chief for taking that action to say let's go to Niger. But his advisers, whoever have advised him to go into war with Niger, did not do well in that respect. All wars should even be moved out, not as last option. We should bring them to table. After World war you see, George, or, you see, bring you must come back to table and we have seen what war has caused. And Nigerians, if we are not careful, they are drawing us to the war.
4: If I may interject here, uh, I I beg your pardon. If I may interject here, um, uh, military incursion into politics is is widely regarded as an aberration. Uh, It shouldn't even happen in the first place. Uh, So whatever reasons they may have given for coming in, uh, we have to look at how tenable is that. Because uh, over time, history has also proven to us that um, when a military uh, junta comes in it's not necessarily uh, a panacea to good governance and uh, some of them even transform into civilian clothing you know, they go back to, uh, you know, they've tasted part and they want to prolong their stay there. So my question is um, how effective will sanctions be in this regard and do you see a prolonged stay of this military junta? And they've been You know, they've uh, eradicated the constitution and they're not even setting a timeline for a transitional period for them to leave the stage. So briefly, if you can do that uh, in uh, about a minute or two, please. Uh,
5: That is why I'm advocating that the Nigerians, as matter of urgent, as chairman of ECOWAS, mobilize other head of state, bring them back to table you can now give them three, two, four, to six months to organize election. But in doing that, we should not be, we are seeing what we've done in other countries. That are doing. Now, now, before giving them that mandate, we must be able to have the, 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 how they will run that political system, which will be in conformity with their culture and belief, and be able to now re-roll them back into democratic setting, and then give them timeline For them to conduct that election, and then we we are back to peace. Then Nigerians have to now take a lead. We have now known that this uh, uh, catastrophe that want to happen to Africa. We are now trying to now uh, 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 solve that problem. We take, uh, we make to block other uh, countries from uh, taking themselves into military or into military incursion in their countries. So but do we, we must put up a blueprint of how their democratic setting should be. We, we should not just call them to table and ask them to go and, uh, no. We should design how their democratic setting will be and be able to railroad it. That money we are going to war with, we now use that money to railroad them to democratic uh, uh, footing. And as they move on, we also monitor how they are uh, elections, monitor all how they are democratic, because they believe in us. Nigerians believe in Nigerians, uh, and they work, they are being with us, and they will still be with us. This is the, my advice to the Commander-in-Chief of Nigeria and Chairman of ECOWAS.
2: All right, I want to say many thanks to you,
0: Shitu Mohammed, for your time here on Newsday.
1: Welcome back. And uh, that was uh, another uh, discussion uh, taking place in uh, Nigeria about the potential of uh, involving Nigerian military forces in an effort that would be backed uh, by the United States and France to reimpose uh, ousted President uh, Mohamed Bazoum uh, in uh, the West African state of Niger, a uranium-rich, gold-rich, country that has become a military fortress uh, for france and the united states along with nato uh, in recent years we'll take a break we'll be back uh, with more of our program for this week music of Hugh Mundell uh, from uh, the late 1970s uh, track entitled, Why Do Black Men Fuss and Fight? And you're listening to uh, the Pan-African Journal special worldwide uh, radio broadcast. Today is Sunday, August the 6th, uh, 2023, and we are broadcasting uh, from our studios in downtown Detroit and uh, august is uh labeled black august uh, to commemorate the struggle the centuries-long struggle against enslavement colonialism neocolonialism and imperialism and uh, we're going to go back once again uh, to review a discussion and analysis of the haitian revolution and its impact uh, in the southern united states and our previous program we heard a rare archival interview Uh, with clr james that was done in 1970 uh, talking about uh, his seminal work entitled black jacobins that was released initially in 1938 and has undergone uh, numerous uh, reprintings Uh, this is a uh, lecture uh, by john o'connor looking at the haitian revolutionist impact in louisiana And uh, you're listening to the Pan-African Journal, a special worldwide radio podcast.
6: Louisiana, a land rich in history and resources, originally the home of the Natchez, the Homer, and the Choctaw, but the adopted home of the Bienville, and Tonti. Louisiana, the focus of international struggle and intrigue for centuries, a place of mystique, the home of a people known for distinct culture and institutions the parish, the police jury, Louisiana that catalysts of transformed the former British North American colonists into a national melting pot. Louisiana, the birthplace of jazz, the refinement of blues and the gospel, the source of Creole and Cajun food, the home of Huey Long and Evangeline, Lee Armstrong and Marie Laveau. The Louisiana Purchase, arguably the world's most significant real estate transaction, will be the subject of this semester-long series, both on its immediate importance, for its continuing impact today. Welcome again to the fifth lecture in our continuing series on Louisiana Purchase. The lecture this week will be presented by Professor John T. O'Connor, who has been at UNO since 1972. His research, publications, and courses have concentrated on Europe and the old regime as well as French Revolutionary Era. And his course on French Revolution and Napoleon, O'Connor devotes much attention to France's colonists, slavery, and the slave trade. In this lecture, he discusses the massive slave insurrection of 1791 in Saint-Domingue, France's most lucrative colony. He shows how Bonaparte's failure to re slavery in French control led to his unexpected decision to sell Louisiana to the United States. The subsequent establishment of a black government in independent Haiti at major consequence of the United States in general, but especially Louisiana.
7: When Haitians fought for and won their independence from France 200 years ago, establishing the sovereign state of Haiti, it was the second time that an American colony successfully rebelled against its mother country. The upheavals in Haiti were linked to and concurrent with the events of the French Revolution, it is no exaggeration to say that the drama, violence and bloodshed in revolutionary France were intensified in her most lucrative colony, Saint-Domingue, the name of the colony during the old regime, which contained in 1789 the greatest concentration of slaves in the world large-scale slave insurrections there began and spread in 1791 leading to the first flight of refugees to nearby islands to the US or back to France. News of victorious slaves winning their freedom sent shockwaves through all the slave societies of the New World including most prominently the American South. In the first months of the rebellion in 1791 when the whites still largely control St. Domingo, as the colony was often called in the United States, the governor of South Carolina sent a message to the Colonial Assembly of San domingue noting how similar the southern states and St. Domingo were in regard to the number of slaves relative to the white population, and recognizing that one day the South might confront such insurrections, he declared, We cannot but sensibly feel for your situation. An undercurrent of anxiety, indeed foreboding, can be glimpsed in the governor's message, and for good reason. The most important slave rebellion in world history was underway. Before discussing the salient events of the revolution in Haiti and their impact on Louisiana down to the year 1815, I want to sketch a brief history of the island that Columbus named Hispaniola, the first territory exploited by Europeans in the New World. The indigenous name for the island in pre-Columbian times was Aiti, or Haiti, meaning land of mountains. In the eastern part of the island, there are mountain peaks rising to 9,000 feet, higher than any area in the United States east of the Mississippi River. From the outset, The invaders expected the local Indian population to provide gold dust as well as labor. When this labor was not given voluntarily, it was extracted by force. Indians who fled into the hills or forest were pursued and killed by dogs imported from Spain. When Columbus landed, approximately 300,000 to a half million Indians lived on the island of Hispaniola. Soon diseases such as smallpox, against which the Indians had no immunity, produced devastating epidemics. By 1510, the Indian population had fallen in some areas by as much as 80%, a sobering reduction in a single generation. To replace the dwindling labor force, the Spanish began to import thousands of African slaves, a pace that quickened, as more and more plantations were developed in the Americas. In a peace treaty signed in 1697, Spain ceded the sparsely populated western portion of Hispaniola to France. It comprised one-third of the island and was called Saint-Domingue. The eastern region, under Spanish control, was known as Santo Domingo economic activity in Saint-Domingue originally centered around indigo production. Heavy investment in sugar plantations, however, ushered in an astonishing series of changes in a relatively brief time span. In an area with no sugar plantation, in 1689, within only seven years of its acquisition by the French crown, there were already 120 in place. Large-scale sugar plantations led to the importation of more and more slaves. From 1690 to 1720, the number of slaves rose from just over 3,000 to well over 47,000. From 80,000 in 1730, the slave population reached 172,000 in 1754, 206,000 in 1763, rising to 465,429, or roughly half a million, in 1789. At that time, 1789, about 30,000 whites, compared to nearly 500,000 slaves lived in the colony. About 28,000 free people of color were in Saint-Domingue. Most were freedmen or descendants of freedmen. Creoles born in the colony were far more likely to be manumitted or freed than slaves born in Africa. Creoles had a greater resistance to diseases and thus a more favorable mortality rate than either whites or slaves who arrived from Africa. By 1789, free people of color owned one-third of the colony's plantations, one-quarter over 100,000 of the slaves, and one-quarter of the real estate property. Many had been educated in Europe and filled numerous places in commerce and the military. Some 750 free colored troops from Saint-Domingue fought against the British during the American Revolution and the expedition to Savannah in 1779, including some future heroes of the Haitian Revolution. Yet despite their wealth, free people of color were subjected to systematic discrimination, for whites in the colony were determined to maintain the barriers between the two groups. Saint-Domingue, like antebellum Louisiana, was a three-caste society, Whites who owned slaves, free people of color who owned slaves, and the slaves, 60% of whom had been born in Africa. Slaves lived chiefly on the 8,000 plantations which made Saint-Domingue by far the most prosperous of European colonies at the time. Indeed, some statistics appear almost surreal. On the eve of the French Revolution, saint alone accounted for roughly one-half of France's foreign trade. It produced more coffee than any other place in the world, exported more sugar than all the British colonies taken together, and vast quantities of cotton, tobacco, indigo, and cocoa of the best quality. The leading port, Cap Francais, or Le Cap, now Cap Haitien had more ship traffic in and out of its harbor than the leading French port, Marseille. Called the Paris of the Indies, Le Cap's population, estimated at 50,000 in 1791, three-quarters of them slaves, was larger than that of Philadelphia, the most populous city in the United States. And certainly Le Cap had a thriving cultural life, at least for its free population the city supported a Royal Society of the Arts and Sciences, a museum, botanical gardens, a number of newspapers, and a playhouse which seated over 1,500. In 1791, more than 150 theatrical and opera performances were staged in Saint-Domingue. All this in a society pulsating with tensions and insecurities, with barbarities and atrocities committed by all sides. Opinion on slavery in the 18th century was beginning to change, but for thousands of years slavery had been practiced and accepted by virtually everyone. That included the popes, among other religious leaders. Only in the middle of the 18th century in England did a concerted effort to abolish slavery in the slave trade finally emerge. Abolitionists, chiefly Quakers, and evangelical Christians, argued that slavery was a moral blot on the history of the West and had to be eliminated regardless of economic cost. They were, to be sure, a distinct minority, but they made speeches, urged members of Parliament to put the slavery issue on the agenda of the House of Commons, and wrote books and pamphlets which included illustrations depicting hundreds of slaves in shackles in the stifling heat of cramped quarters in the holes of ships during the Middle Passage. The example of these English activists led to a parallel movement in France, La Société des Amis des Noirs, the Society of the Friends of the Blacks. This group also held meetings and published pamphlets and books which included illustrations of the cross-section or plan of slave ships. A scholar who has researched this subject, Daniel Resnick, Riley notes that in these publications, printed in France and written in French for a French audience, the slave ships depicted were English, none were French. Members of the French group later sought to put the colonial issue on the agenda of the Revolutionary Assembly, but their primary focus was on improving conditions for free people of color, including civic and voting rights. They did not crusade against the slave trade. That subject, more than delicate, was impolitic in the extreme. The opening of the Estates General at Versailles in May 1789 led to a descent into the maelstrom for the inhabitants of Saint-Domingue. Representatives of the planter elite in the colony were there to claim seats for themselves and a voice in the deliberation. Petit Blanc, or poor whites, also sent a delegation. Spokesmen for the free men of color were present as well to advance their cause, but to no avail. In fact, any thought of serious issues of public concern being decided through debate would soon be dashed. The central message on the day of the Bastille was that change would be effected and would continue to be effected through intimidation, violence, and bloodshed. At the end of August 1789, the Declaration of the Rights of Man and Citizen was passed by the National Assembly. The first two articles were especially pertinent to the inhabitants of French colonies. 1. Men are born and remain free and equal in rights. Social distinctions can be based only upon public utility. Two. The aim of every political association is the preservation of the natural and inviolable rights of man. These rights are liberty, property, security, and resistance to oppression. Men are born free and equal in rights. These rights include property, but slaves were considered property. As in the case of the American Declaration of Independence, The French Declaration of Rights contained an inherent contradiction, a contradiction that flowed from the existence of slavery. In Saint-Domingue, politicians, censors, and the establishment in general sought by every means to keep out inflammatory pamphlets from France that contained any mention of liberty or equality. But information was arriving from every point on the compass and social ferment was inevitable. In December 1789, the National Assembly in Paris rejected the request of free people of color that the rights of man be applied to them. Vincent Auger organized a rebellion of free people of color in northern Saint-Domingue in October of 1790 with a force of 300 men. Soon thereafter, an expedition set out from Le Cap defeated the rebels and took Auger prisoner. He was tortured to death on the wheel in a principal square in Le Cap. The authorities were careful not to execute him in a part of the square where whites were executed. Separation of the races had to be preserved everywhere. A play about Auger's career and his martyrdom triggered outrage in Paris, so much so that planters living in Paris were endangered and often attacked on the streets. Ultimately, after a spirited debate, on May 15, 1791, the National Assembly granted full political rights to mulattoes born of free parents. On the following day, all colonial deputies withdrew in protest from the Assembly. The shockwaves in Saint-Domingue were not long in coming, though probably only one free man of color out of fifty could qualify. The governor of Saint-Domingue claimed that he lacked the power to enforce the May 15th decree. Talk of secession was in the air among whites. Free people of color began to assemble their own army. Poor whites seethed with anger, and then far more serious problems emerged. Amidst the upheavals in revolutionary France, spin-off effects in the colonies included clashes between whites and free-coloureds. Information and rumors from France and other Caribbean islands filtered down to the huge slave population in Saint-Domingue. One rumor that spread like wildfire was that the King of France had accorded three free days each week to the slaves in French colonies, but that the colonial masters had refused to implement the decree. A planned insurrection by slaves in the south of the colony in January 1791 was discovered and quashed, but slaves continued to believe in the three days of freedom accorded them, disposing them to later ally themselves with royalist factions. On the evening of August 14, 1791, a remarkable assembly took place in a forest clearing, the Bois Gaiman, near Le Cap. Slaves from about 100 plantations were present in company with numerous maroons, slaves who had escaped from plantations and lived in the woods or mountains, sometimes in bands. Maroons risked horrible punishments, including mutilation, if caught, and played a vital role in maintaining links between disparate groups of slaves, spreading information and acting as liaisons. Slaves in Saint-Domingue came from various parts of Africa and spoke varied languages, but they shared common religious beliefs. Earlier on the evening of August 14th, the slaves had agreed to begin an insurrection on August 22nd, setting fires to fields and houses at plantations and killing the whites. The leader of this well-planned revolt was Bukman Dutti, a Maroon who was also a voodoo priest. The second gathering on the evening of the 14th was solemnized by a voodoo ceremony in which the blood of a sacrificial pig was drunk by all present. Legend has it that Bukman gave a rousing speech ending with the following call to arms. The good Lord who created the sun which gives us light from above, who rouses the sea and makes the thunder roar. Listen well, all of you. This God, hidden in the clouds, watches us. He sees all that the white man does. The God of the white man calls him to commit crimes. Our God asks only good works of us. But this God, who is so good, orders revenge. He will direct our hands. He will aid us. Throw away the image of the God of the whites, who thirsts for our tears. And listen to the voice of liberty, which speaks in the hearts of all of us. A week later, the attacks began. Cane fields were burned to ashes, plantation buildings looted, machinery destroyed, and many owners slain. Within a month, over 200 sugar plantations were burned and some 1,200 coffee plantations destroyed. Many slave owners feared that Le would be torched. There ensued a bewildering succession of alliances, skirmishes, and shifts in allegiance on all fronts. For a time, free people of color and free blacks joined whites to fend off the rebels. Buchmann was killed in battle in November, and his head was displayed in public. Leadership of the insurgent slaves gradually passed to a former slave, now a free black, named Toussaint Breda, a coachman on the Breda plantation in the north. Toussaint skillfully organized a network of agents and couriers displaying a genius for political maneuvering and military strategy. His resourcefulness would be severely tested once the fallout from radical developments in France hit Saint-Domingue. France's declaration of war against Austria in the spring of 1792 sparked a series of unprecedented crises an attack on the royal palace in Paris in August, a republic declared in the following month, the king tried, found guilty, and guillotined. As civil war erupted in France, the radical leadership declared war on other states, including England, Spain, and the Netherlands. Full political rights for free people of color in the colonies was proclaimed. This resulted in chaos in Saint-Domingue, further complicated by invasions by both Spanish and English forces, the white colonists looked to England for protection. Most of the rebel slaves under Toussaint were fighting for Spain, which offered them protection. Meanwhile, two Republican civil commissioners, Sonenacx and polverel, had arrived in september seventeen ninety two along with six thousand troops to restore order in the melee over 10,000 slaves in Le Cap rebelled, atrocities were committed by combatants on all sides, and two-thirds of Le Cap went up in flames at the end of June 1793. The vaunted Paris of the Indies was now a wasteland of charred ruins. saint offered freedom for slaves willing to fight against Spain or anyone else under the French Republican flag. In August 1793, Toussaint raised the stakes with a proclamation demanding immediate, unconditional freedom and equality for all. At this point, Toussaint took the name l'ouverture, the opening, with its connotation of a new beginning. On August 29, 1793, saint announced the abolition of slavery in the north The other Republican commissioner, Paul Varel, soon thereafter proclaimed abolition in the South and the West. In February 1794, the legislature in Paris issued an Emancipation Proclamation ending slavery in French colonies. In May 1794, Toussaint and his troops left Spanish service, began to fight for the French Republic and successfully drove the Spanish from the territory. It is hardly surprising that the news of abolition in Saint-Domingue, thanks to the daring and fighting ability of former slaves, spread widely across the Caribbean and beyond, and doubtless planted some ideas and some hope in many slave communities. Spanish authorities in Louisiana, notably the Governor-General, Baron de Carondelet, took every precaution to ward off the arrival in New Orleans of Jacobins or slaves who had lived in Saint-Domingue and might bear the contagion of revolt to this area. In April 1795, the worst fears of the Spanish were realized when a slave revolt erupted in Pointe-Coupe Parish on the west bank of the Mississippi north of Baton Rouge. Evidence suggests that the grapevine of information among slaves spread news about the insurrections in Saint-Domingue. Some twenty-three of the slave conspirators were executed and their heads placed on posts along the highway. Two other heads were put on posts in New Orleans at the Plaza de Armas, now Jackson Square. Twenty-two other slaves were given five to ten-year sentences of hard labor. Carondelet also arrested several white Frenchmen and a German tailor. Paranoia was rampant. One of New Orleans's most prominent citizens, Baron Joseph X. Pontalba, wrote in 1796, I can recall when our position in this colony was ever so critical, when we used only to go to bed armed to the teeth. Often then, I would go to sleep with the most sinister thoughts creeping into my mind taking heed of the dreadful calamities of Saint-Domingue. Gwendolyn Midlow Hall has argued that historical myths about the Point Coupe conspiracy of 1795 were deeply implanted into the consciousness of white Louisianans. They became the cornerstone of ideology justifying racist violence and oppression of Afro-Louisianans and of whites who oppose slavery and racism. To return to Saint-Domingue, in May 1797, saint named Toussaint as commander-in-chief of the French Republican army in the colony. When saint was chosen to be one of the representatives of the colony in Paris, Toussaint became the most powerful figure in Saint-Domingue especially after securing the withdrawal of all British troops from the territory in 1798. Seeking to rebuild the damaged economy and to restore the export crops to their earlier dominance, he appointed White to positions of influence in his government. Toussaint had cordial political and economic ties with the United States during the administration of President Adams. Yet he also gave every indication of enjoying his autocratic position to the hilt. By 1801, he had conquered Santo Domingo and declared the abolition of slavery in that territory. Later that year, he wrote a new constitution for San domingue assuming the governorship for life with the right to appoint his successor. That was not the way that colonial leaders are expected to act. Indeed, it bore all the earmarks of readiness for independence from France. Napoleon Bonaparte, the head of the French government, determined to restore white authority in Saint-Domingue. General Leclerc, with 17,000 troops, arrived in February 1802 with reinforcements to come. Initial skirmishes against Toussaint and other black generals produced a standoff and concluded with the willingness of black leaders to cooperate with France upon assurance of keeping their military ranks. Napoleon's real intention became clear when Toussaint was lured into discussions with Leclerc, captured and sent off to a French prison in the Jura Mountains near the Swiss border. Even before he entered the prison, the scene in Saint-Domingue had totally changed upon news that the governor in Guadeloupe had announced the restoration of slavery. Black generals like Dessalines and Christophe deserted the French and war to the death ensued. In November 1802 Leclerc died of yellow fever. By then, out of 34,000 French soldiers 24,000 were dead, 8,000 in hospitals and only 2,000 wasted men remained. The initial idea had been for Leclerc to establish order in Saint-Domingue, including the arrest of the black leadership there. Then he could proceed to the French colony of Louisiana, where a strong military position might be installed. The drain of men and resources in Saint-Domingue had scuttled those plans. Meanwhile, war between France and England had resumed, and Napoleon knew that the English had shark eyes trained on New Orleans. The dominance of English sea power, the loss of a naval base at Le Cap, the absence of a strong army to defend Louisiana, all persuaded him to sell the territory to the United States rather than have it seized by England. President Jefferson was wary of a strong French military presence in the Caribbean or in Louisiana, but he also loathed the prospect of an independent black republic. After Haiti won its independence, Jefferson arranged for an embargo against the new state. His contemporary and rival, Alexander Hamilton, fully appreciated the close link between the revolution in Saint-Domingue and the purchase of Louisiana. To the deadly climate of St. Domingo and to the courage and obstinate resistance made by its black inhabitants, are we indebted for the obstacles which delayed the continued French colonization of Louisiana till the auspicious moment when a rupture between England and France gave a new turn to the projects of the latter and destroyed at once all her schemes as to this favorite object of her ambition. Let's add the verdict of Henry Adams, the grandson of John Adams, at the end of the 19th century. The story of Toussaint Louverture has been told almost as often as that of Napoleon, but not in connection with the history of the United States, although he exercised on their history an influence as decisive as that of any European ruler. The last year of French presence in Saint-Domingue was a revolving nightmare, especially owing to Leclerc's successor, Rochambeau, who was a sadistic maniac. Atrocities multiplied, the black leaders retaliated. The French were forced to leave Le Cap in defeat. Dessalines and his troops occupied the city on November 30, 1803, and renamed it Cap Haitien. Earlier that year, Toussaint died in a far-off mountain prison in France. At the beginning of 1804, Dessalines became the ruler of the new sovereign state of Haiti. The ongoing war in Europe eventually led to the French invasion of Spain in 1808 multiple atrocities, guerrilla warfare by Spanish partisans, and heavy French losses. In an attempt to describe the horrors of the Spanish theater of war, contemporaries referred to it as Haiti in Europe. Once French troops poured into Spain, leaders in Spanish colonies expelled anyone connected to France. This directly affected thousands of French colonists and free people of color from Haiti Who had settled in Cuba with their slaves. Forced to depart Cuba, most of them migrated to New Orleans, practically doubling the city's population. The mayor of New Orleans in 1810 supplied the following statistics on the newly arrived. Whites, 2,731. Free people of color, 3,102. Slaves, 3,226. Many of the free people of color settled here in the Treme section of New Orleans, where the city's African-American Museum of Art, Culture, and History is located. An early historian of Louisiana, Barbet Marbois, wrote in 1830 that Louisiana has been enriched by the disasters of St. Domingo, and the industry that formerly gave so much value to that island now fertilizes the valley of the Mississippi. The immigrants filled professions such as baker, silversmith, cabinetmaker, hairdresser, fencing master, musician, barber, or actor, physicians, lawyers, engineers, builders, surveyors, and publisher printers. The refugees and the children of refugees included the composer and pianist Louis moreau Gottschalk, the chess wizard Paul Morphy, and the jurist Moreau Lisley. The refugees from Saint-Domingue by way of Cuba played a most important role on the American side in the Battle of New Orleans. What they all had in common was a detestation of the English. Expertise regarding sugar cultivation by some of these former French colonists and the experience of their slaves in the cane fields was put to use developing sugar production in Louisiana. Like Cuba and Brazil, Louisiana would profit from the virtual disappearance of sugar exports from Haiti. Of course, the export of revolutionary contagion from Haiti never left people's minds. In January 1811, an uprising of slaves began along the river road near the present-day site of Norco. The leader, was Charles de a slave born in Saint-Domingue. The slaves possessed several pistols, but most were armed with hoes, cane knives, and sticks. They marched south on the river road, burning and pillaging plantations, all the while shouting, on to New Orleans. A battle against 80 militia caused the slaves to withdraw to swampland, but they were cut down by local militia and a detachment of U.S. troops in the district. Sixty-six slaves were killed in the battle or executed on the spot. Others were captured and held for trial. The trial was held at the Destrehan plantation house. Twenty-one of the accused were sentenced to death and shot. The corpses were decapitated and, in accordance with the court order, The heads were placed on poles along the German coast as a terrible example to all who would disturb the public tranquility in the future. It proved to be the largest slave insurrection in US history and received broad press coverage across the country. White refugees from Saint-Domingue were typically among the hard core of pro-slavery advocates in Louisiana. The Land Revolt served to confirm many of their fears and predictions. In the years preceding the Civil War, the late 1850s, many free blacks in Louisiana believed that a move would be made to enslave all people of color in the state. Over 10,000 free blacks, many from New Orleans, migrated to Mexico and settled there. Thousands more went to Haiti. All the while, Haiti had remained a kind of pariah state in the eyes of much of the international community. The papacy did not recognize Haitian sovereignty until 1860, which ruled out the possibility of any Catholic teaching orders going to Haiti earlier than 1860 in any capacity. The United States refused recognition, notably because of objections by Southern congressmen in Washington, who were aghast at the thought of honors being given to black ambassadors or black consuls, Haiti was finally recognized in 1862 by Abraham Lincoln's government. In closing, I'd like to cite a passage from the journal of Louis Moreau Gottschalk, the piano virtuoso and composer born in New Orleans, whose grandparents had lived in Saint-Domingue and whose father had invested in the slave trade in New Orleans. Though he had never been in Haiti, On a return trip from Cuba in June 1857, his ship passed the coast of Haiti as night began to fall and, quoting, all the passengers went below, I remained alone, leaning against the rigging, I contemplated the desolate country that opened out before me. High mountains whose angular peaks seemed as if they wished to pierce the clouds. Solitary palm trees hanging sadly over the desert shore. A horizon whose lines were lost on a stormy sky. Everything, and more especially the name of San domingue seemed to speak to my imagination by recalling to me the bloody episodes of the insurrection. Can anyone be astonished that I could not help feeling an indescribable sentiment of melancholy while for the first time beholding this fatal land with which so many grievous recollections are associated? Our dwellings burned, our properties devastated, our fortunes annihilated. Such were the first effects of that war between two races that had in common only that implacable hatred which each nourished for the other. Can anyone, however, be astonished at the retaliation exercised by the Negroes on their old masters? What cause, moreover, more legitimate than that of this people, rising in their agony in one grand effort to reconquer their unacknowledged rights and their rank in humanity? In contemplating the events of that memorable epoch at the distance of time that today separates us from them, we see the work of regeneration purged from the stains imprinted on it by human passion. It disengages itself from the shadows that obscures it. The blood has disappeared. The stains are wiped out and from the bosom of this world which crumbles away rises somber and imposing the grand form of Toussaint Louverture, the enthusiastic liberator of a race that 19 centuries of Christianity had not yet been able to free from the yoke of its miseries. Every year the United Nations sponsors the International Day for the Remembrance of the Slave Trade and its Abolition. The date chosen for this annual day of remembrance is August 23rd, the anniversary of the rising of slaves in Saint-Domingue in 1791. What, after all, could be more appropriate? In all of world history, Haiti was the first and still remains the only instance of a slave revolt leading to freedom and then to the creation of an independent sovereign state. The year 2003 marked the bicentennial of the Louisiana Purchase of Toussaint's death and of the winning of Haitian independence. The links among the three are indissoluble.
1: delivered uh, by john o'connor on the haitian revolution um, both uh, within haiti and also the impact of the french revolution on the situation in haiti as well as the 1811 slave insurrection in louisiana and you're listening to the pan-african journal a special worldwide radio broadcast i am your host uh, abayomi Azikwe. today is sunday August 6th, 2023, and uh, we're broadcasting from our studios in downtown Detroit. And the issue of uh, foreign intervention in Haiti still remains with us today. There have been offers uh, by the Republic of Kenya uh, to supply troops to go into Haiti ostensibly to bring peace and stability in the country. Yet in order to have uh, real peace and stability in the uh, Haitian Republic, Uh, a struggle must be waged against the United States and France uh, for their continued uh, involvement in the internal affairs of the Haitian people. Let's listen to a report uh, from last year examining uh, the unrest going on now in Haiti and the prospects for foreign intervention.
8: Haiti's government asks for foreign help. But Haitians remain reluctant, with thousands demanding a new government instead. But could foreign intervention prevent Haiti's further descent into gang-ridden chaos or stop the growth of its democracy? I'm Andrea Thanky, and today's newsmaker is The Crisis in Haiti. Fifteen months ago, Haiti's president, Jovenel Moïse, was assassinated. It sent a nation already in crisis into even further chaos. Moïse's appointed successor, Ariel Henry, has been in power ever since and is now calling on the international community to intervene. Now, he wants a specialized armed force to come in and quell the unrest, mostly fueled by increasingly powerful gangs. But for many Haitians, foreign help may do more harm than good.
4: No to the Canadians. No to the Americans. You are monsters. You don't have solutions. You are chaos. You are behind the gangsterization of crime. You are giving arms to our brothers and those who are in underprivileged neighborhoods.
3: Freedom. We are not the states of the United States. We are not provinces of the United States. We are a country. We are a republic. They cannot give us orders. This time we do not need them. If Ariel Henry does not resign and the bank officials don't change their minds, we will make a revolution in
2: the
4: country.
9: This request
4: is an unconstitutional act. This is an act against the state. It is an action against the Haitian people's demands, who want a free country where everyone can eat, have healthcare and live like human beings.
8: Whether it's foreign intervention or a change in government, something drastic needs to happen. But the people of Haiti don't appear to be on the same page as their leaders. Powerful gangs have taken control of the country's main port and are blocking vital fuel supplies. The UN has imposed heavy sanctions on one of the country's most powerful gang leaders, but it's not enough to curb the unfolding crisis. At least 30% of the population needs some kind of emergency relief including more than two million children. Almost half the country is facing acute food insecurity. Fuel and medicine are in short supply and nearly three quarters of the country's major hospitals have no electricity. Plus, with gangs gaining power by the day, hundreds are being killed and more than 25,000 Haitians have been displaced. Now, the international community admits Haiti urgently needs help, but they can't quite agree on what should be done Still, Canada's foreign minister, Melanie Jolie, says her country will not stand by and do nothing while Haitians are in trouble. Canada and the international community are concerned about the violence in Haiti, in
5: particular against women and girls. Canada will not remain idle while gangs and those who support them terrorize Haiti's citizens, and we will continue to support
8: law-abiding Haitians to put an end to the crisis in their country. But so far, Canada has only sent a fact-finding mission to assess the situation, and it remains to be seen if any other nation will go further than that in spite of the government's calls. So, joining me now to discuss what Haiti needs is from Washington, Haiti's ambassador to the United States, Boshi Edmond. Thank you so much for being with us. Let me first start by getting your assessment of just how Desperate the situation is right now because some are describing it as a Descent into anarchy even I mean is Haiti at the depths of despair so to speak
10: Uh, I Wouldn't say no Uh, But where and when in a country 4 million kids cannot go back to school Grandma and grandpa they cannot go to the hospital if they need care because all roads are blocked when any patient who want to go for a dialysis cannot go to the hospital, those are very dire situations. And therefore it is very important for the government to take action. And those actions mm-hmm. that used to be taken before through so the national police against, against the armed gangs are not getting the results because the power The firepower of those armed gangs are even far superior than the national police. Therefore, it is very important, since we are living in a global village, to request international assistance
8: so we can face
10: and quell the gangs.
8: Right. Um, Just quickly, though, for those who argue that Haiti now qualifies as a failed state, what do you say to that?
10: I wouldn't say Haiti is qualified for a failed state. I would say rather that Haiti uh, is the country that is facing some uh, difficulties uh, through its institutions, and but I would say that we are not a failed state; we are a state that having some, uh, you know, incapacity of uh, helping all institutions to function very well. Okay. But that doesn't mean that we are failed. We are not but this is a difficult moment as any other nation went through those difficult moments. Some nations went to civil war, they went to all those great depression, everything, but they, they came out. Mm-hmm. But I believe that's the moment of Haiti to come out because once all Haitians, all political stakeholders, all members of the civil society, when they realize that there is a need and the urgency is now to come together so we can work things out And make sure with the help of our international partners we come back
8: and of course the united states has proposed then to those ends a, a multilateral rapid reaction force led by what they've called a a partner country with deep and necessary experience but in other words one that is not led by the united states uh so how much would you welcome specifically that kind of force where the u.s and specifically the U.S. is not in the lead.
10: But listen, uh, the, the U.S. may not be in the lead like to be part of, those, uh, of, the, of the, any striking force that could have come to help the national police. But first of all, let me clarify something. Uh, we are not calling for an occupation of our territory. What we are calling for as a member of the international community we are calling for international assistance to accompany the national police to do a better job. Mm. Because Mm. once we have that assistance, they will have more equipment, they will have more training, and the results is gonna be more impactful. Therefore, uh, even though the U.S. is not part, but the U.S. has been helping particularly uh, by giving the, the national police uh, training and equipment, and I believe, to some extent, they will be there as well.
8: Do you sympathize at all, then, with the, the many Haitians who don't want any you know foreign inter- intervention, not least because of the tragic history that foreign interventions have had?
10: I, I agree with them, and I respect their opinion. It's, uh, I understand that, uh, uh, but as you know, it's a social dynamic, Uh, in any society, you'll never find everyone agree on one point. There will be always some uh, dissension. There will be always some disagreement. We respect that. But I will say that to them. Uh, We only have one force, the national police. They've tried very hard. There is no result so far. And taking over the gangs. As a matter of fact, many police officers have been killed. Now, when you have a situation where four million kids cannot go back to school, when all those people who need care cannot go get access to the hospital.
8: Right. I, I, well, I know we, the conditions are so dire, and I know there is desperate need for help, but, but let's look at it from both sides. Uh, the truth is many Haitians see this as what would be an effort to prop up a leader that they did not elect, and that's some even defined as a, just a step away from being a dictator. All out, And then on let's, the other side, you know, the, the countries that you're asking for help fear very much that they'd be stepping into a quagmire, because the people on the ground don't want them, and they would be seen as those propping up, you know, some,
10: let's, go let's, ahead. That's what you call it here. No one would come, would, even though uh, Prime Minister Henry would have uh, uh, left today, the one that would, who would come after him won't have any legitimacy either. I mean, no one now, now, it is not a matter of thinking that uh, uh, any uh, kind of international assistance will pop up the, the current prime minister. This is not the issue. The issue is, in this kind of environment, the main objectives, which is to hold free, fair, and democratic elections, cannot be happening in this such environment. Therefore, there has to be someone leading and to take those decisions. And I believe uh, we, we continue, and the prime minister is continuing uh, and seeking a solution and a consensus and with other political parties from the different uh, parties of the opposition so they can have a kind of con- national consensus and to move forward. Because now it is not the time to look for who's legitimate or not. Mm. No one would... Will... But they do want after.
8: to look forward. They do want to know what's next. If this force comes in again, as they feel would prop up someone that hasn't been elected and they believe just wants to hold on to power, what follows that? Fine. It if you try not, to break uh, the back of the not, gangs, break the backs of the gangs, is, who, who takes power then? Do you pave not. the way to elections?
10: Of course. The prime minister will be, uh, will still be there. And I believe, uh, right now, I can tell you that there is uh, uh, still negotiation going on with different uh, sectors of the opposition parties. And I do believe Uh, to what I was told, uh, there would be uh, soon an agreement. Uh, And once we have that uh, international assistance that will help us to clear the roads and to take over the gangs and to restore law and order and to make sure security we established, then we will continue to work, pave the way to uh, a, 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 a consensus within the political parties, have an electoral council, and work for Uh, uh, putting, uh, uh, you know, laying out all those uh, necessary requirements to have free, fair, and democratic elections. Ambassador
8: Edmond.
10: He said that. He he really wants to be out of job. His mission was to hold elections, and he's carrying out that.
8: Ambassador Edmond, really, thank you so much for being with us on the Newsmakers. Greatly appreciate it.
10: Happy to be with you. Thank well, let's you. Bye-bye.
8: broaden out the discussion now and introduce two new panelists. And from Boston, we have Brian Conkannon. He's a human rights lawyer and the founder of the Institute for Justice and Democracy in Haiti. And from New York, we have Kim Ives. He is the editor at Haiti Liberté, a weekly newspaper. Thanks both so much for being with me. Uh, Brian, you just heard that conversation there. We know how many Haitians do not want this foreign intervention, I mean, especially given the history. But... Haiti is desperate. So is there a way to get it right this time by bringing in foreign troops, maybe not Western troops, but just to quell some of the violence, break the control of the gangs, and lay the groundwork for new elections?
11: There is a way to get it right and to lay the groundwork for fair elections, but that does not involve sending foreign troops into Haiti. Haitians know their situation better than anybody else, and as you can see from the footage you've been showing, they don't want foreign troops. They know that foreign troops will inevitably be coming to prop up the the, the government that is now in power and has been dismantling Haiti's government for the the last 11 years.
8: Okay,
2: so what's the alternative? The
11: the alternative is what Haitians have been shouting on the streets, in the media, wherever they can, it is to stop propping up the repressive government and allow a Haitian solution to emerge. Okay, but how do you get the
8: gangs under control?
11: First of all, you stop supporting the government that is fueling the gangs Mm. and supporting them. And second, you let Haitians do it. And we're always discussing this in, you know, among non-Haitians. And Haitians say, let us do it. S- step one is you get the repressive government out. We have plans. We've been organizing. We've been meeting for, for months, for years, on how this is going to come out. And I think we owe it to Haitians to allow them to implement their solution.
8: So the civil society you're saying are the viable alternative. There there is leadership in the waiting, there is a way to do this peacefully because it is so complex. I mean, the power struggles here, the corruption behind it, uh, the complicity of businesses and political elite. It it sounds like a huge task and just getting the violence under control, it's, it's, it's hard to see how just civil society could handle that right now, but you believe it's true. Uh, let me ask, it's a- I, I just want to get Kim into the conversation. Uh, Kim, because are, are you on the same page there?
12: Yeah, I totally agree with uh, Brian. I mean, <laughs> look at Haiti from 1791 to 1804. We could say it's a failed state, it's um, anarchy, etc. But, I mean, this is a foundational principle of all uh, nations, self-determination. Let the Haitians build their own society in their own way. They don't need uh, some uh, mischief from, uh, or crimes even, from uh, foreigners who have already got that track record in Haiti.
8: So is there any role for foreign powers to play, just to help, just to assist? You know, the, the ambassador was saying there, it's just to come help our national police forces get the training and understanding they need on how to fight this battle better.
11: No, there's, there is there's certainly... No, oh, sorry, go ahead.
12: Okay. No, I I don't think, you know, it's the thin edge of the wedge. Look at Vietnam. It started with special forces advisors, and then it'll escalate. No, let the Haitians sort it out. They uh, have been trying to for for decades now, and uh, each time the U.S. comes in and just makes matters worse. And a lot of the um, difficulty we see, and even the whole framing of it, the framing of gangs, I mean, this is a trope. And it's uh, just uh, a a distortion of the reality to create a pretext for U.S. intervention. Maybe the U.S. leading from behind, from behind Canada or whoever, but it's uh, essentially U.S. intervention.
8: Is it though, Brian, let me ask you, because, you know, many observers say these gangs really are all controlling. They've just completely uh, destabilized everything down to the very basic daily lives of Haitians that just can't go on living. Um, and let me ask you this as well. Do any of these gangs actually, you know, claim to represent the people?
1: Welcome back. And uh, that uh, excerpt uh, from uh, the news report uh, illustrates the continuing uh, outside interference and destabilization under the development of Haiti, which has gone on uh, for centuries. That's going to conclude uh, our program for today. If you'd like to have access to this program, uh, just go uh, to our website, and that's at the Pan-African Radio Network. And the Pan-African Radio Network is located at uh, blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan-African Journal. That's blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan-African Journal. If you'd like to read uh, the Pan-African Newswire, just go to our website at pan News. Blogspot.com. That's pan We're going to close out the program uh, with the John Coltrane Quartet uh, from the album entitled Africa Brass. This is uh, Abayomi Azikawe signing off, and have a beautiful week.